Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. When it comes to Congress, the things that we may hope for are not always the things that we uh, might expect to see happen. On episode 21 of the First Freedom Podcast, our colleague Robert Vega talked about some of our expectations for the 116th Congress, expectations which are mostly discouraging. Today we're going to talk about some of the things we hope for, and we are happy to be joined by Lauren McCormick. She is acting director of the USCCB's Office of Government Relations, and Lauren is our advocate on Capitol Hill for the church's religious liberty goals. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for having me, Aaron and Mary. So Lauren, before we talk about uh, the legislative priorities, I wonder if you could give us your insider's perspective on advocacy itself, kind of how it works, because As I mentioned, some of the things that we're expecting to see happen are not the sorts of things that we want to happen. And a reasonable listener might be thinking, well, if you know this Congress is somewhat unfriendly towards some of your goals, why bother? Uh, What is the point of advocating for legislation that very likely is not going to pass, at least in in the foreseeable future? Um, And before you joined us at the Bishop's Conference, you worked for a senator. You know how these things work. You have a sense. Uh, it's good. You give us, uh, to quote First Peter, can you give us a reason for the hope that, that's within you? If, if you're hopeful if at all, Lauren. Yes. yes, I am hopeful. And as Catholics, we are called to participate in public life. And as Mark's gospel says, we are to go into the world and proclaim the good news to all of creation. That mandate of charity and truth and of preaching the gospel includes political life, and that includes Capitol Hill. So um, despite how cynical pe- some people may feel, um, it's, it's really important that the bishops at the church have a voice on Capitol Hill speaking into legislation, talking about the common good, how policies either harm or help the common good. And there have been many times in the past several years that we've been able to influence legislation to that end, using Catholic social teaching to help legislators on Capitol Hill see the work that the church is doing, uh, protect the ability of the church to continue doing that good work, protecting religious freedom, life, the poor, the vulnerable, migrants, all of those things motivate us uh, and really it's the core of our faith and the gospel our belief in christ that inspires all of our positions on public policy so we we are proud to do that work on capitol hill and um it's it's a hard time right now especially with the um, divided government there is a lot of polarization a lot of retreating to corners but Mm. We are doing the best we can to try to bring people together, have good bipartisan conversation about important issues to the extent we can. And and we really play a unique role in that work, in those conversations, because we don't come from the political right or the political left. We are nonpartisan and bipartisan and are playing that role to try to bring people together. Lauren, I think you hit on something that was key in, um, we just finished a a training in one of the, uh, uh, for the pro-life department. And one of the things we talked a little bit about was like, how do we do our work in this time of, you know, the church gets criticized for being, getting involved in 
politics. And one person said, well, it's not that we're political, we're civic. We're about participation in this process. And it's our, our duty to be involved and to have our voices, the, cat, the truth of the Catholic teachings be heard in the public square. So in a sense, I think, does that dovetail kind of with what, what you're saying about your work on Capitol Hill? It does. And the bishops have had a lot to say about our mandate of being involved in political work. Faithful citizenship was a big document that the bishops put out several years ago, and we continue to use that as a document to help Catholics inform the way that they view and engage in politics, and especially the the need for more civility an objective truth in the way that we are engaging with public policy questions um, in this in this time where um, there is not enough not enough focus on objective truth mm-hmm. and real civic dialogue and respect for the other person that that deeply disagrees with you on a political matter but is fully and completely a human being um, at the same time, we we need more of that real civic dialogue in our country. Um, As you know, the issue of polarization is um, one that really interests me, so we could definitely go in that direction, but but to stick with kind of what we set out to do with talking about legislative goals, and we'll have you back on to talk about polarization, because I'm sure you've seen it from a different perspective than, than I have, for example, because you've worked on the Hill. Um, so I would love to talk about that again. But to talk about legislative goals, uh, let's start with something that's probably not been in the forefront of most people's minds, uh, the so-called parking lot tax. Hmm. Now, what is the parking lot tax? What do we hope will happen with it? Like I said, it's not, this isn't something that gets a lot of headlines. Uh, so what, what's going on here, and what are we hoping to do with it? Well, I was smiling earlier because the parking lot tax is is just so dry compared to a lot of the other, the religious liberty issues and some of the other issues that we work on can be, can be so um, complex and really we are just asking the government to not tax our parking and transit benefits and to not require us to file tax returns for the first time in history. And so the backstory is that the Republicans' tax cuts law that was enacted in 2017 included a new tax on all nonprofit parking and transit benefits that nonprofit employers provide to their staff. So that's a 21% tax. Um, so that would be churches, um, what, not some hospitals potentially, or? Yes. All nonprofits. All nonprofits, charities, soup kitchens, anybody that provides parking and transit benefits to the staff to staff are subject to mm. this tax. And so thankfully, um, there is a lot of support in Congress for repealing this tax. I think every everyone agrees at this point that this was an unintended consequence of the law. It should not have been included. And so we are asking Congress to move quickly to fully repeal this tax. Uh, The Joint Committee on Taxation estimated that this tax overall is $1.7 billion over 10 years on the nonprofit sector, which is significant. Yeah. So um, 
what we are working on doing is trying to repeal that tax and what we would like to do is do that as soon as possible because tax season is coming up nonprofits are going to be filing their tax returns and from a religious liberty standpoint one of our biggest concerns with this this tax is that it would require thousands of houses of worship across the country to file 990s tax these a form mm-hmm. of tax return for mm-hmm. the first time in history we have a lot of concerns about um, what precedent that sets for the way the government interacts with houses of worship because we've always had different tax treatment for churches in the tax code my general sense from it too is that apart from them from churches being taxed, there's also the issue of just ensuring that they're complying with the tax code. I mean, you've, you've kind of introduced another element now that my sense is that there's a, or my understanding is there's kind of a concern that, that, that churches might not even know if they're, if they're in compliance. And is that, is that also an issue that is of concern? It is an issue. If, if you think about a little parish that has one part-time church secretary, um, they are not necessarily going to be keeping up with all of the different tax requirements that are changing from year to year. And this is, this is a huge change mm. in the tax treatment of churches. Um, the good news is that all, you know, all of our diocesan attorneys are aware of this. So, um, there is, there is awareness, but again, this tax should have never been included in mm-hmm. the first place. So it's really important that Congress act to repeal it as soon as possible before anyone has to file these So forms. no no one noticed it was just sort of slipped in? And how did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> well, that, Washington. That, what? that makes you kind of nervous about uh, yeah. the state of things in general if it just kind of gets... <laughs> I, I've broken five laws already today and I didn't even know it. <laughs> uh, but on that, we're fairly confident that it's going to be repealed, right? I mean, you're looking like you're not so sure. <laughs> yes, well, for the viewers, I mean, for the listeners, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's widespread bipartisan support for repealing the tax, but okay. it's also really difficult to get things done yeah, in Congress. Yeah. Mm. So, um, you never know when when things just don't go the way that you expect them to. We were actually really hoping and cautiously optimistic that the tax was going to be repealed before the end of last year and had very high level support for doing that and it didn't happen so i I, i'm i continue to be cautiously optimistic that we'll be Mm -hmm. able to get something done this congress but ultimately it's up to the members Perhaps uh, something we're not even cautiously optimistic about would be the inclusion act um Uh, This is legislation that was a priority last year. Uh, We're still pushing for it. Can you talk about what the Inclusion Act is? Uh, I think you've been on this program before in episode 12. You may have said a little bit about the Inclusion Act, but um, for review, what's the Inclusion Act? Why is it necessary? Yeah, so the Child Welfare Provider Inclusion Act, I'll just call it the Inclusion Act, is a bill that would say that the federal government and state governments can't discriminate against a child welfare provider because of its religious views or its religious beliefs. And this legislation is in response to actions taken in states like Illinois, California, 
Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, where the state governments there have said, if you are a Catholic agency and you will not subscribe to what the state government is saying you need to do in terms of family placements, then you can't be a licensed provider in our state. And so Catholic agencies are being pushed out of the work that they're doing. This is in response to that state action. And we think it's unjust that these agencies would be unable to serve children simply because of their religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. We believe that's religious discrimination and there should be a prohibition on that. So what kinds of agencies are you are you talking about here? What kinds of providers? We are talking about foster care and adoption providers. Specifically, those Specifically, two. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. Mm-hmm. And particularly with the opioid crisis, which has been such a big uh, issue in the last several years, we're seeing an increase in the number of children that are entering state foster care systems. And we need more agencies to expand the capacity of the system to serve those children and families. We need more agencies to recruit more families. And we shouldn't have to check our Catholic views at the door to be involved in that social service work. Mm-hmm. So it's it's something that is really important for the work that charities agencies are doing. And this isn't just a Catholic issue. There are Protestant and Jewish agencies that also want to continue doing their work in a way that's consistent with their views. So it's it's something that we are pushing for this year. However, with divided government, there's there's not a path to enactment. So the work that we're doing is trying to educate members on the Hill make the case for why this imp- this is important and that support will hopefully put us in a better position for a future Congress and we have a better chance of enactment. Yeah, that's, I mean, because that gets to this issue of, you know, what can we hope and what can we expect? Is, it, is that, would you say that's, we know it's probably not going to pass this Congress, but, but there is a sense that by, you can kind of try to build support right now. Is that kind of what we can accomplish over the course of the next year or so that, that educating Congress people will possibly set us up for success in the future? Is that kind of how it works? Yes. A huge part of what we do is educating members on the Hill of what our position is, what our priorities are. And so this is a way of educating on the specific issue. And the the other thing to keep in mind on the Inclusion Act is that there's a series of lawsuits that are working their way through the courts right now. So hopefully even outside of the legislative realm we could have some good legal relief in these areas but we we really don't know yeah i mean it just seems so important to me because you know you mentioned the opioid crisis and you know you hear these stories about kids who you know having to sleep in offices because they can't be placed with anyone people kids aging out of the system which i mean basically means they were never they never had parents to raise them, you know? I mean, it's it's a really troubling situation. And then to think that you would, and, and then on top of that, oftentimes my sense is that religious groups tend to be the best, are very good at recruiting because they can recruit their own. So if you have multiple kinds of agencies, you have 
a lot of different hands to, to kind of reach out because Jewish agencies can reach out to Jewish people. Um, a Baptist agency does a good job recruiting Baptists, Catholics with Catholics, etc. And so when you have this big problem, it seems like then shutting out people who want to try to help just seems like the exact opposite of what you, you would want to do. I mean, it really shows, it just shows you how dangerous a commitment to sort of an ideology I think can be. And I mean, because it, this affects real people. So uh, a last major concern of ours is it has to do really just with the Senate, uh, but it's not about legislation. It's about the confirmation process of nominees to the federal judiciary and uh, the politics that's come to surround that whole process gotten pretty intense in recent years. Talk about what's going on there and our concern, our concerns about what's ha- what we're seeing with the Senate and some of these judicial nominees, especially the ca- Catholic judicial nominees. Yeah. Well, it's important to start, start off saying that USCCB does not take position on any nominations. However, it's an unfortunate reality that starting a couple of years ago, we had U.S. Senators who were questioning nominees for public office, judicial nominees. The case from a few years ago was Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who was questioned by Senator Feinstein saying, the dogma lives loud, clearly the dogma lives loudly within you. Of course, most listeners on this podcast, I'm sure, are familiar with that. So at the time, our Religious Liberty Committee put out a statement in response to that, because our constitution explicitly says that a religious test for public office cannot be imposed. And it is unconstitutional to apply a religious litmus test to say that because you are a certain religion, because you are Catholic or any other faith, Jewish, atheist, Protestant, that you could not serve in public office. And so we did a response to that at the time And in the last year or so, there hasn't been other issues, but just in the past few months, there were several nominees to the federal judiciary who were questioned specifically on their membership in the Knights of Columbus. And I mean, that is just so egregious. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. It is so egregious. (laughs) Good point. And, (laughs) And this was it was a proxy religious test. It was a way of saying, because you share the Knights of Columbus views on abortion and marriage, that you are somehow unqualified for this job. And that is imposing a religious test. And it's unconstitutional. It's unjust. It's divisive. And so we uh, have issued a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Archbishop Kurtz sent that letter saying how a completely appalling it was that the senators would call out the Knights of Columbus for derision. This is a charitable organization that has been doing amazing work for decades, serving poor and the vulnerable, and also uh, providing ultrasounds to ultrasound machines to pregnancy care centers. So Mm -hmm. they're doing so much good in their communities, and yet uh, nominees for federal public office are being questioned about their membership. And and mm-hmm. so it's raised a lot of concerns with us in, in terms of the committee's actions of late. So we have had to respond to that, and we're hopeful that 
this will not continue in this Congress, but we're going to have to keep monitoring that. I mean, we're hopeful it won't continue, but do you you still think that this, you, you expect though that it's possible that we will continue to kind of see this? And, and I think because it's important that we kind of be clear-eyed about what we're looking at over the next year or so and, and that we not go silent when we need to speak up about this. I mean, is this something you think we're going to see more of? How much hope do you have, Lauren? <laughs> <laughs> well, not to put you on the spot. I but, really uh, hope well, that. Well, of course she's on the spot. Uh, <laughs> we, we're interviewing her. We're recording. I'm, I'm on the spot. Um, I hope that everyone listening, if you have not already taken the time to do our action alert to the Senate on this, will do so because we need the senators to hear not only from Catholics but of many faith voices about how this is unacceptable and unconstitutional. And really, the more vocal that we can be in response to these latest actions will help prevent the same thing from happening in the future. And the good news is that we have been joined by Jewish and other faith voices pushing back on the religious tests that have been imposed by some senators. So um, we need those different voices. We are hopeful that more of our interfaith partners will weigh in with the committee, but the senators need to know that their constituents are paying attention and that it's unacceptable that they would feel comfortable with this line of questioning. So mm-hmm. I hope people will weigh in on that. So where can people find the action alert that you speak of or sign up to get more of them? Or just one, maybe. But <laughs> Well, that action alert about the no religious test is actually right is on our homepage, www.usccb.org slash freedom. Freedom. You'll see there on the homepage – no religious tests action alert is there if you go there if you take action there you'll also then find the links to other action alerts that we have including uh, the one about the inclusion act the no parking lot tax Um, of course you can i mean you can find all of our stuff if you if you on our homepage. also you'll see right there kind of at the top a place where you can sign up for our newsletter any new action alert we get or that we put out, you'll get, you'll find it in the newsletter also. Uh, so those are a couple of ways uh, you can easily, you know, find our action alerts and so, connect with us. USCCB.org front slash freedom. Yes. Freedom. Mm-hmm. When you hit on it, does the um, clip from Mel Gibson's, the Mel Gibson movie, oh, Freedom, be, <laughs> play, right? You know how think we low, are with technology. Tech, yeah, we're a little low tech. <laughs> we the church is not always on the cutting have. edge of things. Yes. You know, the one good thing, though, about the religious, Knights of Columbus religious tests is I, my understanding is that they kind of got a boost in membership from the whole thing. I mean, they got so much press. Uh, a, a friend of mine who actually used to work here at the Bishop's Conference who, who works over there said they did actually see a little bit of a spike because of all the attention. Because um, you mentioned all the great things they mm-hmm. do. They also do a lot to... Uh, support Christians being persecuted in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that gets overlooked because people only look at their some of the things they do domestically. And really, their fraternal organization is an, is another is a big. Uh, it's important not to just think of them as a political organization. Oh um, no, I mean I don't. 
I don't not think even mostly political. yeah primarily their activity is is the fraternal and the, the yeah. charitable works really i mean they do so much charity work but we did get a lot of great kind of funny memes and videos and stuff about you know the most people think of the knights of columbus they only interact with them at fish fries and you know <laughs> pancake pancake night on fat tuesday and stuff like right. that so the idea that being a member of 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 the fish fry organization somehow disqualify yes. you from being a federal judge just seemed so absurd rightfully so uh anyway so there was some maybe some positive thing that came came out of it all uh anyway any other things though I mean, we mentioned the action alert are there any other to wrap us up anything you would suggest though people can ways people can speak up about these things or get involved any last comment that you would offer i think letters to the editor are or writing your congressman separately from our action alert doing a meeting in your state office for your congressman or senator those are all things that are relatively easy to do and if anybody wants to contact the usccb office of government relations we can walk you through how to do that can put you in touch with your local congressional office and that's one thing that not everyone realizes is that congressmen and senators don't only have a dc office they also have multiple offices that are probably within 15 minutes of your house so you even if you don't live in D.C., can still be a part of sitting down, doing an in-person meeting, saying, look, I'm concerned about the rights of child welfare agencies. I'm, I'm worried about the, the religious tests that have been imposed on Catholics, and it's important to do those meetings. And um, that's what we are doing up here every day on Capitol Hill, and to have that support at the local level just strengthens our work. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it's a lot less intimidating to meet in the local office than it would be to come up here on Capitol Hill and you know because it can be it's it's can a lot of people have fears about sitting down with their representatives and I imagine in your community locally you're more likely to know people or know someone who knows someone who works there and it can be a little less intimidating yeah definitely thank you so much for uh, taking the time to let us know what's going on and we certainly will pray for your efforts I and mean, thank you for all the work that you do on the Hill advocating for religious liberty. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. It was nice to have you. Thanks for having me on. This is Aaron Matthew Weldon. And Mary McCluskey. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.